0: Welcome, my friends, to the Bob Bride Podcast. My name is Mike Keenitz, and today I am interviewing Dr. Nathaniel Chin, who is a geriatrician in Madison, Wisconsin. He has an expertise in treating Alzheimer's as well as dementia, and he actually has his own podcast called Dementia Matters. So, today we are going to be talking about dementia and Alzheimer's. So, without further ado, here is Dr. Nathaniel Chin. Well, welcome, Nate, to the program. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So we're going to get started right away. Can you share your background information with us and what made you interested in studying dementia and Alzheimer's?
1: Yeah, so I'm a geriatrician, which means I am trained to take care of people who are 65 and older And in that role, I work in a memory clinic at the University of Wisconsin. And so I I talk with and evaluate and diagnose people who are having memory or thinking changes or just concerns for change. And ultimately, that might lead to a diagnosis of something we'll talk about later, mild cognitive impairment or dementia. And I do that uh, two times two days a week. And then on my other time, I work as the medical director of our Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and the Wisconsin Registry for Alzheimer's Prevention Study. So two very uh, large research uh, groups that are really following people in the community uh, over years, even decades, and seeing how brain changes, how the brain changes as it gets older. And trying to identify that early change and then try to find treatments or interventions to stop progression of biological change and symptom development.
0: I thought it was very interesting. I never heard of a geriatrician before I found you.
1: (laughs) So I was like, I, I understood
0: what it was right away, but I just kind of found that interesting
1: that's why i start with it because i think a lot of people don't know and and in my work you know we believe in a team and not that all doctors and providers believe in a team but we've built into our clinical care a team of a physical therapist occupational therapists social workers nurses neuropsychologists we believe as we get older people are more complex there's a lot more to look at Uh, and with a holistic approach we need the expertise of a group of people. And so I will tell you, one of your first questions was, how do I get here? And it was never my plan to be a geriatrician. I thought I'd be an infectious disease doctor. It was because of this family history. My father had uh, Alzheimer's disease that it completely changed how I viewed my life and my career. And so moved back from my wife and I moved from San Diego back to Wisconsin, which is not something we had intended to do. And And then we and then I got into this career and it's been very fulfilling and rewarding, but it was never, never on my radar as a part of the plan.
0: Yeah. For those that don't live in the Midwest, I am from Minnesota and the weather here, San Diego sounds a lot better weather this time of year. So
1: it sure does. Yes, it does.
0: So could you provide a brief overview of what dementia and Alzheimer's disease are and how they differ?
1: Yes, and I'm glad we're starting with this question. There's so much confusion. Many people think they're the same thing, and they are not. So dementia is a collection of symptoms and changes. And so it's either what a person is feeling or family or others are observing. And so in dementia, a person is having a thinking change. We call that a cognitive complaint. And that change is a decline from their baseline. It is resulting in them noticing it or other people noticing it. And the key thing here is then they have to actually go and be assessed and so there has to be some form of objective testing and i mean a thinking test the paper pencil tests or i guess these days a digital test and that testing has to show your brain is not performing as one would expect for your age and so once you have that you have a form of impairment and then for dementia that has to be significant enough that you are now unable to do some or any of your regular daily functions. And by that, I mean managing your medications or your finances, driving, cooking, cleaning. And that really is the collection of symptoms that represents dementia. And so it's not a disease, it's just a way of describing what someone is experiencing related to a brain change. But the brain change is really where we get at the the biology of what is abnormal that's happening in the brain and Alzheimer's disease is the most common brain change that we see. And so Alzheimer's is the buildup of two proteins, one called amyloid and then years later, the second one called tau. And those two proteins should not be sticking in your brain. They should be cleared, but they're not. And then they're causing, uh, miscommunication of your brain cells. And ultimately your brain cells are going to die prematurely because of it. And that's what actually causes the symptoms of dementia.
0: So can someone have dementia, but not have Alzheimer's?
1: Yes. And in fact, you know, we, we, the statistics always vary 50 to 80% of cases of dementia, are Alzheimer's related. And the reason it's such a wide range is because more often than not, it's multiple things happening. So multiple etiology dementia, but the other things would be vascular disease. So blood vessels that are narrow, too narrow, or you've had a stroke, Lewy body disease, which like its name, it's a buildup of Lewy body proteins in the brain. And then Parkinson's disease, which is similar to Lewy body. It's a a protein alpha synuclein that builds up And then there's another one called frontal temporal disease, which is yet a different protein, TDP-43, that's building up and causing dysfunction and death of brain cells.
0: Boy, the the memorization of this is a lot. (laughs) You're not going to quiz me later, are you? I might at the the end of this. (laughs) I'm good if I can remember all the brain hemispheres and stuff. (laughs) So what are the key symptoms that someone might experience in the early stages of dementia or Alzheimer's?
1: yeah and so i'll approach that separately so in dementia you know one thing i'll say is the earlier stage of 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 impairment is actually called mild cognitive impairment and that is when you're having the thinking complaint You've also had lower scores on your thinking cha- on your thinking tests, but you're still able to do day-to-day functioning. So that is a big group of people. There's five to eight million U.S. Americans who have mild cognitive impairment. And Alzheimer's is a potential cause, but there's lots of others, as we've talked about. Um, and so I would argue the earliest symptom of dementia is probably even pre-dementia. It's probably pre this MCI, mild cognitive impairment. And really it would be someone who is saying... Well, I'm, my thinking is different. I'm slower in processing information. I'm more inattentive. I am forgetful. People are telling me I'm repeating things. I'm struggling to find a name during, a, uh, you know, when I meet someone or a word during a conversation. Those would be the earliest thinking changes. And you would think, you would assume there is a thinking change before there's a functional change of, I can't drive anymore. There should be years most likely between those two types of symptoms. The problem for all of us is some of these changes are normal. There's normal age-related change. And so struggling to find a word in the middle of a conversation is a normal age-related symptom. If it's persistent, if it's noticeable by others, it's more likely that maybe this is a problem and there's actually something causing it other than your brain is getting older. But it's so hard to know that just from experiencing it or seeing it, which is why people have to go in and be tested because that is the best way of determining normal age change versus not for Alzheimer's. It is very specific in general to memory. So someone with the protein changes of Alzheimer's, and I will say for 10 to 20 years, you can have those changes without having any symptoms. But once you do start having symptoms, it would probably be forgetfulness, uh, of short-term things, things that have just happened to you hours ago. Or repeating yourself because you didn't remember what someone had just said to you. Sure,
0: yeah. The uh, what's the layman's term I always used to hear in a clinic? Oh, uh, brain fart. <laughs> yeah, not...
1: or, or senior moment. Yes, yeah, as well. You know, as a geriatrician, of course, I don't like that term because it, <laughs> it, you know, it's, being senior is not a bad thing, right? There's a lot of yeah. pros to being the senior and in charge. So, but yeah, senior moments is a common one, or a brain fart, or brain fog. You know.
0: Yeah. So, if someone my age has a terrible time just recalling names, am I gonna get dementia now, or do I just have other learning disabilities?
1: <laughs> well, first of all, I'm looking at you, you don't look very old to me. So, <laughs> if you're if you're having really persistent problems, I'd say, yeah, come and be evaluated. But um, no, I mean, just because a person feels forgetful here and there does not mean they have a problem. Um, I would say, though it's always good to look at well why am i struggling today or why have i been struggling more recently because so often it's a reversible cause like you're not sleeping well maybe you shouldn't be staying up watching so much tv maybe you just need to be exercising more because your body's in a funk maybe you know you have sleep apnea or you're depressed and you really need to talk about that or it's a side effect you know people will take supplements or medications any side effect of those could be slowed thinking or forgetfulness.
0: Yeah. I mean, for me personally, I've always been that way. So I'm not. <laughs> but it's much. your baseline. You know, you
1: bring up a really good point, which is many people will say to me, well, I've always been like this. And that's a, that's important context because one of those criteria that I mentioned to you early on is a decline from your baseline. So if your yeah. baseline was never stellar, well, let's keep that in context.
0: Yeah. So how is dementia and Alzheimer's disease diagnosed?
1: Yes. And so again, separately, so dementia, it's, it's a really good history. So that's why you have to talk to someone. So we want to know about your symptoms, when they started, how they've been over time. We want to do, we want to re- evaluate reversible things like your mood, your sleep, your medications, your chronic health conditions. And then we do want to do some testing. And many people won't come in because they don't want to do those paper pencil tests, but they could be anywhere from five to 45 minutes in length. And we're going to push the brain to see how does it perform. No one's supposed to do perfect. Otherwise, that would be a bad test. And, and so we're looking to see if there are too low of scores. After that, a person would likely have, they'd have a physical exam to look for Parkinson's disease or Parkinsonian features where you're having tremor or rigidity. Then blood work, a brain scan to look at the structure of the brain. Uh, if you have access to a neuropsychologist going to a memory clinic for r- really thorough testing, and that would be the 45 minutes to four hours of testing, which is not necessarily fun but can can be needed. And that actually at the end, you can lead to a diagnosis of normal cognition, mild cognitive impairment or dementia. And, so, and that takes can take time. So that could be you know three visits potentially in over a course of six months. Alzheimer's is a lot harder because we're not doing a biopsy of your brain. We're not gonna drill a hole and look at it, you know, pull tissue out and look at it under a microscope. So historically, it's always been based on a clinician judgment, your history, the blood work, and ruling out everything else. But all of that has changed because we now have what's called biomarkers or, or tests that look for those biological changes in the brain. And we can do that through a PET scan, Of the brain. So, a special type of imaging tool, a lumbar puncture, you put a little needle in the back and you collect the fluid. And even more recently, a blood test. And we can look at these proteins that shouldn't be there in the brain, but we can determine that.
0: Do they use MRIs at all or no?
1: Yep. Part of the dementia workup would be an MRI to look at, you know, how big is your brain and has it shrunk too much? That would be abnormal. And what do the blood vessels look like? So, that's a part of the standard initial workup for just MCI or dementia. And then it's these other fancier advanced tests that might help us rule in Alzheimer's disease as a cause of that dementia. So
0: do often people get fully evaluated for this or do they not go through all those procedures?
1: I would say most people don't get fully evaluated and there is a fear and a stigma in the community as well as in healthcare for a long time you know people in the community they don't want to necessarily know that they have alzheimer's that's a very scary thought and so people don't want to get that diagnosis and so it's better to for them to just not come in now i would discourage that because there's lots we can do but i think that's still very prevalent in the community Healthcare providers aren't always comfortable diagnosing the mci or dementia diagnosis uh, and then it does take more Uh, You have to have the right facility, the right access to care to be able to do MRI scans or lumbar punctures, and certainly some of those fancy tests I mentioned about PET and uh, blood-based tests. And so I would say most of the time, well, I don't want to say most of the time, there's a good good amount of people probably don't come in. You know, some people will come in and be diagnosed in a primary care clinic with very brief tools, which I would hope we can improve on. And then, you know, there are there are long wait lists to get into a neurologist or a geriatric practice uh, for memory, full memory testing. But it's not it's not a, a process where everyone's doing it.
0: Yeah, I feel like the fear is a big thing, because I think a lot of them feel like they're going to lose their independence just because, like, I've worked with a lot of our clientele was Medicare age. And obviously, yeah. you know, we can kind of tell if things aren't always there, <laughs> as I'll say, but. Um, But yeah, most of them just, I think it's pretty much fear of losing independence.
1: I would say that I would say driving is, you know, when I come into my clinic, they always, there's this strong fear of, I don't want to lose my ability to drive. And I get that. And we don't, you know, we're a clinic that talks about driving pretty regularly, but that, I mean, that's further down the road where we, where a person, we have to have those discussions about stopping. And so, very, I mean, there's so much more we can do prior to all of that, but that is a big fear. You know, I think that's generational too. I don't know about you, but I don't, if someone told me, you know, you're going to have to be the passenger and relax in the shotgun seat and not drive anymore. That sounds okay to me. Like, I don't, I would, I would like to be chauffeured around. So that's fine. Um, Maybe our generation will be, you take away our smartphone. That would probably be. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you can't tweet anymore. You're making weird tweets out there. That's right. So, what cognitive tests do you normally use, and how can people interpret the scores?
1: Yeah, and so, well, there's two types of cognitive testing, and by cognitive, just the thinking ability. So, there's a cognitive screener, meaning not meant to diagnose, but meant to let a person, like a healthcare person, know, hey, there it could there could be something wrong here. And so those are very common, and many people probably listening have seen those, heard about them, or had them done to them. Uh, And that one's called the Mini Mental State Exam, or MMSE. That's very common. It's been around for decades. Another one would be called the SLUMS, and that's the St. Louis Memory Assessment one, and that's free. Uh, And then the MOCA, um, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. That one you also have to pay to be trained to do, which is not necessarily a bad thing since we want the people doing these tests to actually be qualified to do it. But those are those are the, 15 to fi- the five to 15 minute tests. And they should tell us if there could be a problem, but they really shouldn't be used to diagnose. They commonly are, but they really shouldn't be. They're just not designed to do that and they're not sensitive enough to do that. And then there's more thorough tests. And this is what we do in, in my memory clinic Um, and we have ones called R bands, which is an acronym, like so many things called repeatable battery for the assessment of neurological status. And there's (laughs) another one. I mean, and I don't, I will tell you, I'm not a neuropsychologist, so I don't know these very well, but the Weiss for the West adult intelligence scale, you're the people who know these tests are going to be laughing as they're listening to this, (laughs) as I butcher their pronunciations, but those are, you know, 45 to an hour and a half long. They're looking at all the different parts of the brain and they're really pushing the brain. How, how do you perform on this, on these artificial, you know, tests and, and we have ranges of what we anticipate for a person's age. Um, Sometimes they can account for your education level, but not always. And not many of them have been done in non-white individuals. So there's still this racial bias too, that more tests are being developed to help address that. But those are the tests in general there are many others i mean this field is very advanced um, or has been doing this for a long time they're just not as commonly used as the two i mentioned
0: yeah the slums and what is it mocha you said oh yeah i remember though is that occupational therapists commonly do those initially right
1: right right and those are good screens those are good ways of saying if someone says i think my memory is different it's perfectly reasonable to do one of those tests but i've seen many times people have that test done. It was sprung on them. They weren't, they weren't ready. They slept poorly the night before and they score very low. And then someone's told, Oh, you have dementia, but then they come to my clinic and they these very hard, more difficult tests. They do great on once they're prepared for it. And so that's what I mean by, you know, you could score very low and not have dementia. You could score very well and still actually have a problem if you're a very good test taker. And so it's just not meant to diagnose. It's just meant to be a tool That healthcare people can use.
0: Yeah. I remember (laughs) sometimes we're in the same room. We can hear the test. And I remember something about John Brown and lives in a city and this and that. And it's like, they tell you a quick story and then they ask you questions about it. I'm like, I don't think I would take away half of that. The first time I heard it, I'm like, I've heard it so much now I can, but.
1: I was just going to say, look, you can—you were worried about your memory, but you remember John Brown. So <laughs> no. there you go.
0: I heard it probably about 50 times in the clinic <laughs> in the past. So what are the common risk factors associated with dementia or Alzheimer's? And are there any preventative measures people can take?
1: Yes. And so when we think about risk factors, a lot of them are cardiovascular, meaning, you know, having high blood pressure is a risk factor. They're starting to show certain types of cholesterol, whether they're too high or too low, can be a risk factor. Having diabetes is a risk factor. Obesity is a risk factor. Um, having heart disease, having had a stroke, but even things like depression is a risk factor. Being physically inactive is a risk factor. There's a family history that certainly can can be a risk factor, not as strong as we once thought. Um, those are all risk factors for dementia and anything that... You know, there are other ones that are modifiable to, um, you know, person's educational level, how, how um, mentally stimulated they are. More research is showing environmental exposures. Air pollution is a, is a factor for dementia. Um, hearing loss is something that's been on my mind lately as a geriatrician, and so having hearing loss is associated with future thinking changes. When it comes to Alzheimer's, you know, we, we tend to just apply the same ones. It's a bit more, more difficult because again, if we think about Alzheimer's as those proteins of amyloid and tau, we have to be more specific. And so we're still looking at the mechanism. What is actually driving these proteins? Uh, and you know, a lot of people are speculating and thinking inflammation, chronic inflammation, um, too much, uh, stress, too much um normal processes like oxidation which is a normal thing in the body but is not it's it's in its overdrive in someone with alzheimer's and so you know but a lot of a lot can be done with lifestyle so there's there's a statement that 40 percent of dementias are likely preventable and so those are all the things i just mentioned that if we address them in early to midlife and even in later life that that can have an impact
0: um Yeah, I would agree because like I when I think of I always heard family history, you know, Mm is a common one. And I have one grandmother that had it and her sister had it as well. But I mean, they didn't develop it till they were 80 and lived to be in their 90s. So it wasn't like, you know, it started at 60. I did have an uncle where it started in his late 50s, but that was like a early onset from alcohol Mm -hmm. abuse, which is. Completely different,
1: and and that's you're bringing up the important point of we are not our parents or our grandparents. One in the behaviors, right? There's a lot more smoking. There's a lot more, you know, unhealthier, unhealthy uh, behaviors. There's a lot more exposures. People were in the military having exposures that were, you know, impacting them. You know, in Wisconsin, we have a lot of. Uh, industry and farming, there's different exposures there. Um, And so those are different. And so everyone, not everyone, many people will say, Oh, I have a family history of Alzheimer's. And what they really mean to say is, well, my parents or my grandparents had symptoms that looked like dementia at the time, everyone thought it was Alzheimer's because they, those words were synonymous with each other, but it could have been alcohol or vascular smoking. It could have been something else. We just didn't know to look for it. And so certainly it matters and it matters to the person, of course, but it may not have been Alzheimer's. It could have been something else.
0: Yeah. So what are the current treatment options available for individuals with dementia and Alzheimer's?
1: Well, there are. You know, I, would get my, I think the foundation is going to be, you know, these lifestyle things addressing your, your risk factors. So people who are exercising, eating well, sleeping well. Um, and then, of course there are there are medic well then i would say taking care of your chronic health conditions if you have high blood pressure let's make sure you don't have high blood pressure with medications and lifestyle the third thing would then be medication specifically for i would i'll just say dementia and that would be medications that promote your own mm-hmm. signal for memory and your signal for memory is called acetylcholine Think of that as the equivalent of dopamine. Most people know what dopamine is. It's that reward signal in the brain. Well, the memory signal is acetylcholine. There are drugs commonly used. Dinepazil is the generic name of the most common one. And that just promotes that signal in the brain. So it helps treat a symptom. Um, another one is called memantine, and that can help keep brain cells in essence healthier. Um, it's used later in the in uh, someone who has dementia. But those are our two primary medications, and they've been around since 1998. Well, one of them, 1998, the other one in early 2000s. We haven't really had a new medication for dementia until very recently where there was a drug, two drugs approved for Alzheimer's disease. And the first one was called aducanumab, which is a mouthful, and then lecanumab, And those are IV based, meaning you give them sort of like chemotherapy. You go into an infusion center and you get it running through an IV line. And that actually breaks down that first protein of Alzheimer's called amyloid. So those drugs are brand new as of 2023. um, And that's really changing how memory clinics and memory care is looking right now.
0: Are there any like dietary changes or recommendations that have come to light in recent years or no? Well,
1: the one that we recommend in sort of the Alzheimer's memory space is called the MIND diet, M-I-N-D pretty clever for the creators. That was Rush Mm -hmm. University. Um, And it's Mediterranean and Dash. So Mediterranean, I think most people have heard of that. You know, it's, it's olive oil instead of butter. It's and less cheese and, you know, lots of vegetables and um, healthy fats. And then Dash diet is a low salt heart healthy diet. And so they combined those and then added antioxidant rich foods like berries to that. And so that's the diet that many people will talk to. The science is, you know, there are studies coming out that show benefit and others that don't show benefit. Um, But I think it makes sense that 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 seems like a very healthy diet. And there's lots of evidence that the Mediterranean diet in general is good for the heart. Um, And certainly there are people who will talk about ketogenic diets and and, um, low-carb diets. And those are being studied, but those are not yet into the... They haven't reached the level of evidence that people are are saying yes, you should be doing this. But many people will do you know what works for them. I myself am an intermittent faster, so I don't eat for fourteen to sixteen hours a day. Um, as a result, you know I feel better. But there's not the evidence yet to fully support that that's going to benefit my brain in the long run.
0: Yeah, I mean, personally, I tend to get more brain fog after eating compared to not. So I I understand the intermittent fasting component.
1: Yeah, me too. That's I didn't eat prior to this talk, so I didn't want to seem sluggish. <laughs> <laughs> so are there
0: any recent advancements or promising research in the field of dementia and Alzheimer's?
1: yes and i'm glad you said dementia too because it's not just alzheimer's so there's a lot of work into the other uh forms of dementia or types of dementia so there's work looking at we can now identify amyloid and tau and that's a big deal that's taken a long time to get to this point so a lot of the research in alzheimer's is looking at those tests blood tests to be able to identify those proteins reliably and then look at how lifestyle interventions or other factors may impact those proteins in a person's health. But then we are looking, and we as in the whole field are looking at finding other, being able to find the other proteins. So alpha-synuclein, Lewy bodies, TDP-43, whether it's in spinal fluid or blood or a fancy imaging scan, there's a lot of work going into being able to identify those. Once you have that ability, that's when clinical trials and drug trials can really take a center stage and start looking to see if they can improve things. And that's what we're seeing on the Alzheimer's space, but we're, we need to make more headway in the other space as well, as well as identifying early blood vessel changes. I think there's a lot of work also though, in how do we provide better care? So in the caregiver focus, how do we strengthen the abilities of caregivers, whether that's family or um, hired caregivers? How do we improve the quality of lives of people living with dementia. So there's a good amount of work as far as care delivery. And I'm excited about that. And that's where their technology can be involved in that too. But there, I mean, there it's, it's really quite broad and it has to be until we have treatments that prevent, cure, halt the disease. You really have to consider every avenue, which is why, you know, I would say the research is expensive because you need lots of participants. You need lots of participants from a lot of different communities, and you have to have a lot of different approaches to how we can help people.
0: So you mentioned this a little bit in your answer, but how can individuals with dementia and their caregivers cope with the challenges associated with this condition?
1: And that's the right word to cope. Uh, I would say, and you know, so now I'm going to put on my own personal hat. And I would say you have to build your team. Many people try to do it alone. They think, oh, I don't want to burden my family. I don't want to burden my friends. I don't, I don't, we can, we can do this. And while it's true that there are some that can do it, most cannot. And that's not because those individuals are weak. It's because this is a very complex all-consuming condition. And so having your friends, your family, having support services, utilizing clinical services, home health, your specialists, your physical therapist and occupational therapists. I, I would say to the, the person with the disease and the caregiver, have your plan involve them. People want to be helpful. They don't know how to be helpful. So tell them what you need and create that support because everyone needs support, both the person with the disease and the family member. And then I would say, keep, keep your contact with healthcare because you, you need to manage your other health conditions. You need to talk about your goals of care. You need to have your, your advanced directives, your living will, your financial powers of attorney, healthcare powers of attorney. You need to do all of that. um, In addition to living your best life, which is, should be the focus of your, of your care.
0: So just a curiosity question for me personally. So like, when dealing with clientele that had Alzheimer's or my grandmother, obviously they get very, can get very repetitive with their questions depending upon or statements. I don't always know if it's best to tell them the correct thing or just go along with them because sometimes the correct answer upsets them.
1: Oh, this is such a good question. It's, and this is the ethical dilemma of the person, not the person with the disease, but like you in that example as the family Mm -hmm. member do you truth tell or do you do therapeutic fibbing and there are other people use different terms for it and you know you can't tell a person what is right or wrong because it's really up to them what they think is is right for their situation i i fully endorse therapeutic fibbing i think that ultimately we have to live in that person's world in our loved one's world and so why repeatedly give them information that is really harmful to them distressing and hurtful and so the common example will be your loved one let's say it's your parent. your parent has dementia and they think their spouse is still alive and coming home and you're the child do you tell them oh yeah you know they died it's just us right now and they have to have that conversation over and over and over again where they're crying about it or do you just tell them, yeah, they'll be coming home in about an hour. What do you want to do until then? And, you know, so for me my own personal belief is it's okay to say they'll be coming home in an hour because I just don't think that telling them the truth is is going to be helping them in any way. But that that's my own ethical decision, right? And so other people are going to say, nope, I I have to do it. And the consequence of that could be repeatedly living in that reality of crying and being upset and so but there it it is sort of a binary answer um i will tell people who feel very strongly about truth telling we'll tell it once see how it goes and then you can do therapeutic fibbing afterwards if it was such a strong reaction and you don't want to have that conversation again
0: yeah it's i found that like with clientele it's not i you know i don't know them really on a personal level but oftentimes i'm like if you're just happy i can usually get through this session you get your benefits it's fine where it's like you know one of my own grandmother like i remember one time i was driving her back from like a christmas um we took her out for christmas she was in a, a nursing home at that time and i brought her back and she kept asking where we're going you know, I'd say back to her town, where she was from. Yeah. But then, like, she's like, oh, we're going home. I said, no, the nursing home. And then she oh. didn't realize she lived there. <laughs> and I answered truthfully once. And then I was just like, okay, I'm, I'm going to sleep.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you did it. I mean, you, yeah. you did it one time. And then you realize it's not worth that. And so, yeah. And everyone, we're- I
0: think, reacts different. Because sometimes the truth, like, I've had people go, oh. And then they're fine. Right. But I've also had people you know emotionally break down so it's kind of a fine line i guess
1: right and that's, and that's why it's individual but it, there's nothing wrong with trying and then seeing how it responds maybe trying again to see if it's a different response but ultimately i i just don't think there's anything wrong with the therapeutic fibbing so for your listeners they're not bad <laughs> people for doing that I, I like that term therapeutic fibbing i'm gonna yeah <laughs> it's not my term but that's what i that's what some of the experts have said yeah huh
0: interesting So this last question is kind of, I, we kind of went over it, but what advice would you give someone who is supporting a loved one with these conditions?
1: Take care of yourself too. I mean, one, you know, there's this common phrase from the past called the invisible second patient. And I think hopefully we can make them visible, but that is the, that is the loved one. That's the caregiver. So you are a part of this process. So you are there as a unit with your loved one who has dementia And that means you should be present at medical visits. You have a voice. You are needed in the care of that person. But also your health really helps determine the level of care and health of your loved one. So they need to go to doctor's visits. They need to keep healthy and either exercise, eat well, or certainly get sleep. And so don't sacrifice yourself. Don't try to be a martyr because you're not only hurting yourself. You're going to be ultimately your loved one is going to suffer from that too. And so you need to really prioritize the two of you and not just your loved one
0: yeah i think like my i thought my family like my parents aunt and uncles, did a pretty good job with my grandmother i'm just speaking from personal experience yeah because they were at like retirement age when her dementia started getting to the point where she couldn't really be alone but they didn't want to put her in a home yet so they managed to have someone there each day and stay overnight for like two to three years Oh, Before wow. She had to go in because there's three of them alternating. But I i was like, no, it's pretty good because I've seen, you know, many others that have to go in early, unfortunately, you know, to nursing homes. And like, I feel like they like progressed quicker almost. Um, I mean, not to say a bad thing if they have to go right. to those homes, but I felt like having, you know, their familiar surroundings and their loved ones there, like it just kind of helped.
1: I think that's more than just okay. I think that's really impressive that they were able to do that. I mean, that's incredible. And I think that, you know, while this is a really sad condition, you can see some pretty remarkable, beautiful things in that sadness. And, And when families come together and I mean, you can, that dedication that your family had to rotate and spend the night and be a part of it. It's pretty remarkable, right? It's, it, it makes me feel good that people are ultimately can be really amazing that's a lot i personally think that's a lot to do and so kudos to them but you know you and you can see these stories and i think that's what's what can be nice the silver lining in all of this is how people can come together um, and really help care for another
0: yeah it's i remember one time they were on vacation so i was the one <laughs> who <laughs> i got with grandma but she was really good then i mean it was like just make her dinner and hang out with her and stuff. But it was fun. Sometimes when you hang out with them like that, you actually get to hear stories you didn't know because their mind is kind of in the past. And then you get to get wealth of information and dirt on your own parents. So it's that's kind of right. Fun. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm glad it was beneficial for you. <laughs>
0: um, so are there any other questions I it go over or things you'd like to add?
1: You know, there is a question that your listeners might have about genetic testing. Sure. Um, A common question that has come up for me is should I get my direct-to-consumer genetic test looking at this gene, APOE? And it is true, APOE is a a strong genetic risk factor. It is not a guarantee that someone is going to develop Alzheimer's disease, but, but how it breaks down is you get one APOE from mom, one APOE from dad. So you get two copies and there are three different variations, two, three, and four. Two is actually protective for some people. Three is neutral, and four is that risk gene. And so, for instance, if you have ApoE33, which is the most common, you have a lifetime risk of developing Alzheimer's that's anywhere from like 10 to 15%. So, that's sort of our baseline or neutral. And if you have one ApoE4, so let's say you're ApoE43, you're two to five times more likely to develop Alzheimer's. If you have ApoE4-4, so you got a copy from mom and dad, you're at 10 to 15 times more likely. So, I mean, it is a strong relationship, but there are plenty of people who have ApoE4 that never develop Alzheimer's. Just like there are plenty of people who who have ApoE3-3 that do develop Alzheimer's. That's what I mean by it's not a guarantee. And historically, we have not recommended people get testing because... One, there's not an intervention related to that. And two, it could be very emotional for people outside of a clinical environment. And I still think, I still would recommend not doing a direct-to-consumer and going into your healthcare. The only caveat to that is in healthcare, the only reasons we would be getting it now are because we are evaluating you for one of those new therapies that we mentioned. We want to know your genetic risk because it also means you're, it helps, uh, stratify if you are at risk for complications of those new drugs. And so we, people are learning this, but I still think in the context of, of an, an expert and someone who can provide counseling, that would be better than learning it on your own. Um, if you're, if you're interested.
0: Yeah. I I think if I was prone to get Alzheimer's dementia, I wouldn't want to know at my age.
1: (laughs) And, and, (laughs) and right and so some people actually signed up for things and they didn't even realize that information was going to be shared with them and and that's a lot that's a that's a heavy amount of information to take in <clears throat> so i would recommend people avoid being surprised and really look at like what am i going to do with this information what are the implications of learning this so for instance if you were to learn your apoe now you know that you would have to answer questions on life insurance and disability insurance that would say, I have learned it. And, and that could be a factor in determining whether you're eligible or not. So there are things people have to really think about. And I just, ultimately, a genetic counselor or a healthcare provider will hopefully be a person who can walk you through that versus just having to figure it out yourself in your own home.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel like if I knew that result, you'd go under one of two ways. You'd want to do as much as you can before you think it would happen. Or you would just get severely depressed. It's going to happen and have a negative outlook on life. So, right. right. I don't want to do it. No,
1: thanks. Yeah. (laughs) But
0: everyone can, you know.
1: Right. But I think, I mean, that's, I I agree with you. If you already feel like you're motivated to to have a healthy life, to do the best you can, then what is that information going to do for you? Other than potentially make you, you know, spiral into some sort of, you know, sad outlook.
0: Yeah. So. Do you want to mention your podcast again oh. in case people want to learn out more? Because you go way more in depth on this than I do.
1: Well, yeah. Well. So yeah. So our so the podcast is called Dementia Matters, and it was created six years ago as a way for us to connect one with our participants so they knew the kind of science we were doing, but then two with the general public so that we could really help fill the space of scientific information on Alzheimer's disease, and we've we've added focuses on. Um, caregiving, on clinical uh, questions that come up. It's a lot of fun. It's actually a lot of fun to be on the other end of it. So I appreciate it. Thank you for letting me be on this great show. Um, but I interview scientists and I, and I try to really get down to what the, the scientific field is doing and what, what we should be thinking about as either patients, family members, or the general public. Um, and so yes, Dementia Matters, you can find it on a podcast app right next to this one. And um, it's a lot of fun. We try to make it Uh, engaging and short so that people can listen to it on their on their way to work
0: well thank you so much for joining me today
1: yeah thank you for having me